Well, my name is Liz Gray and I'm the rector here and it's lovely to welcome you in the, most of you are managing to be in the shade. I hope those in the sun are happy with that, but uh, it's just so lovely to be in person. And Zoomies, we love you too. We would love to be able to reach out and touch you, but uh, a very warm welcome to all of you as well. So last week, Amy pointed out this lovely touch where John twice said, hey, I got to the tomb first because I could run faster than Peter. And I loved that reminder of John's very real kind of almost teenage boy mentality. I've got to get there first. And yet now today in the reading, we've got Thomas who says, I oh my goodness, I can't believe it. And I'm just not going to believe it until I can touch Jesus. I wonder if you've ever said, I just don't believe it. Kids, I don't know if that's something which you, and I don't know if you would need to believe something by putting your hand into a kind of gory womb. But uh, perhaps for a moment, or do, while I'm talking, you could write a little list. What are the things which you just don't believe? Are there things which people say to you and you kind of go, I just don't believe that. I'd encourage you to think about those things and think, what might help you to change your mind about them. Sometimes it's a matter of who you trust, who you ask, what it is that you don't believe. But if you could sit down with Jesus, what would you ask him? What would be the things on your list? I love the fact that Jesus does not rebuke Thomas. He doesn't really tell him off. He just actually meets him where he is. He listens to the things that he doesn't believe and he offers him a way of believing. Once you've made your list, feel free to then take it up with your parents or with um, Amy or Katie or Miss Josie or me. Any of us would love to sit down with you. And the same goes with you grown-ups. You can write a list of all the things you don't believe either. Uh, happy to sit and chat with you about them. Um, some of them I might not believe either. Who knows? You know. So well, make the list. But here we've come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, probably everybody has heard a sermon on this chapter at least once in your lives. I mean, stick your hand in the air if you've ever heard a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13. Yep, everybody. Okay, I'm not talking to uh, people who've not heard this then. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem. And if you haven't heard it on a Sunday, you might well have heard it at a wedding. It's a really, really common chapter to read at a wedding, whether people are Christians or not. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem to love. And I wonder at some point in the past whether you've ever been asked to reread the whole passage inserting Jesus instead of the word love. So, Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not boast or is not envious or boastful. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus doesn't insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth and so on. It all fits beautifully. It makes a beautiful description of who Jesus is. And maybe you've also been asked to put your own name there, to try this one. Liz is patient and kind. Liz doesn't envy and boast. Okay, it just doesn't work. It breaks down pretty quickly on that first word, patient. I've tried to convince people my middle name's patience, but it isn't and it's not true. But actually, although it does make a great passage to be read at weddings, turns out that's not exactly why Paul wrote it. I don't think that was his kind of raison d'etre as he came to this passage. So let's look at it fresh. 
Napoleon Bonaparte used an interesting phrase. He talked about the iron fist in a velvet glove. And actually, as I came to read 1 Corinthians 13 over and over again this week, that was the phrase which kept coming to mind. Because that's a little bit how it feels like Paul is dealing with the Corinthians in this chapter. It's an interesting phrase, iron fist in a velvet glove. I actually found myself thinking about this, prompted by a friend this week. Um, because I had my second dose of the vaccine on Monday and then had two really, 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 really rubbish days thereafter. I mean, they were awful. And um, I was thinking, you know, vaccines are meant to be like a velvet glove. They come and then they give your body all this protection so you don't get sick. Um, but I felt like somebody had actually forgotten to wear the glove when they gave me the injection on Monday. It really wasn't very nice. Um, but. The good news is, is now my body is ready to offer that iron fist to any vaccine, uh, to any virus that comes calling. So back to Paul. I wonder if he kind of paused as before he began to read this passage. He's just been writing about the gifts. You'll remember Amy talked beautifully about that last week. About, and as he was writing that, I wonder if he just kind of wanted to pause and take a breath as he's become aware that the Corinthians love the gifts, but actually in some ways they love them a little bit too much and they've become a little bit too partial to some of them. So they're kind of going, oh, you guys, you preach really nicely in tongues. We think actually you're like the A team and you guys over here, you've just got a little bit of healing ministry going on. You're kind of like the B team. They'd already begun to become divisive. Honestly, the Corinthians are about the best people ever at finding something to be divisive about. And so I wonder if he thought back, and maybe he had his pile of parchments there, and he kind of flipped through them and thought, oh my goodness. Do you remember when I wrote right at the beginning about jealousy? Then, in, that was in chapter 3, then in chapter 1 and 3 and 4 and 5, I talked to them about their boasting. Then, I mean, obviously he didn't have chapters, but bear with me. In four, chapters 4 and 5 and 8, I had to tell them off for being puffed up. And then in chapter 7 and 11, I was rebuking them for being so rude to each other and their shameful behavior. In chapter 10, I had to tell them off for being self-seeking. I wonder if it, he kind of looked at all of those things and he kind of pushed back his chair and sighed and he thought... Okay, what connects all these things together? What is it that just makes this make sense? All these divisions, that they traps that they keep falling into, the divisions of race and ethnicity and economics and social demographics, what is really at the heart of all of this? And then he kind of sighs and he kind of goes, oh, yes, I've got it. I've got it. So with, then with his beautiful velvet glove, he comes to say to them what the deep truth is, what they need to do. Because Paul knows it's not enough to simply put your willpower behind it and say, I'm not going to be jealous, I'm not going to be boastful, I'm not going to be puffed up or rude. But the only way to truly change your behavior is to see the other person more clearly. And the only way we can do that, Paul suggests, is by relying on the Holy Spirit to learn how to love other people, how to empathize, how to see their pain and point of view. I think that's why we're born into families, 
so that we can begin, hopefully, to learn how to love well. How we can learn to respond to unfairness and injustice with love. How we can learn to counteract bad behavior in, with care. You know, you look at Logan and Emily and little Marcus, I mean, that baby is just so loved. You can look at him now, he's not being fed, he's, everything's fine, he's gorgeous. Love is where we begin in our families and I do recognize that not all families are safe and nurturing places, which is sad and hard because a family should be a place where we learn how to love well. Because when we're learning to love well, it helps to start out with people who are disposed well towards us. It helps when they're kind of similar to us and have similar traits and expectations and priorities. That's a good learning ground. And then we can begin to learn to love others in an ever-increasing wider circle. So Paul's challenge to the Corinthians, and thus to us as well, is, is not to simply try and stop being rude, but to put alternative behaviors in its place. It's much stronger than not being negative, as we learn how to love. Perhaps when you were doing opposites at school, you learned that the opposite of love was hate, but I think it's much more diverse than that. The opposite of love can be indifference and fear and pride and jealousy and boasting and being puffed up and rude and sh shameful behavior because love is an action, it's a verb, it's the way it's shown is by the way we behave towards other people. And so when you are about to react hastily, rudely, aggressively, with someone who you may well feel justified in thinking they believe it, how can you stop and change the narrative? Well, the positive route is to choose your action at that point, not your emotion or your feeling, but the way you're going to behave. And when you're trying to, if you're struggling with a particular negative emotion, which tends or negative behavior, often a good way of doing it is to find a great role model and to use them as the way to begin to learn by copying somebody who does something well. And actually, after the 1 Corinthians series, what we're going to do is we're going to do another series called Imitate Me, where we're going to talk about the people and influences that we've had in our lives, the people who we've wanted to learn from in how to love well. But often that requires then a place of connection. Connection with the person who you're struggling perhaps to love. And that's where we need to come back and we need to say to God, God, can you show us how we can connect? How do you love this person? They seem a bit of a jerk to me. How are you gonna teach me how to love them? So next time when perhaps a colleague or family member or neighbor or somebody is being really annoying or at school, Perhaps you could pause and say, hmm, let me imagine this person in my family. Let me imagine them in their family. Let me ask a genuine question about, about who they are, about their hobbies or interests or something about them that is true for them. Think of an action that would be kind. Find a way to build relationship. And even if you have an interaction with a stranger, remember, that they too are part of a family, that they are part of a network of relationships of people who do love them. See if you can find your way into that connection point. It's a little simplistic, but if you could imagine that Kim Potter, instead of seeing a 20-year-old Dante Wright 
as a threat, had seen him as a frightened younger brother, could she have found another way of reacting, a way to protect and help? And if the police in Dante's neighborhood had always acted respectfully and with impartiality and kindness and known to be trusted and respectful, would he have reacted differently? If the shooter in Indianapolis had seen those people who I kind of assume were ex-colleagues as, as family members, as people who could be loved, could he have found a connection with them that would have stopped him from firing his weapon? Of course we need law enforcement. Of course we need discipline in homes. Of course we need boundaries and consequences in our homes and workplaces and on our streets. But these can be exercised with empathy and with love. Because loving actions have a different outcome. And hopefully our interactions will never be as disastrous as those I've just mentioned. But our lack of love can wound deeply. Our rudeness leaves scars. Our pride and arrogance bruises other people. And so this week, can you seek the humanity in another? When you are feeling fear or hate or indifference or jealousy, look at the person and say, what actions can I do to show that I love them? You might well need the Holy Spirit to do a lot of work to show you that place. And we're so grateful that the Holy Spirit does come and teach us to love as God loves. So good that we can look at God's actions in this beautiful, beautiful poem, which we can read and remind ourselves that God is patient and kind, not self-seeking, not rude. And next week, Paul will go on in chapter 14 to talk about the other gifts some more and the gifts that we can ask for and the gifts that we can get to help us to act in loving ways. But today he says, learn to love. Learn to breathe in and out with the breath of God. Get past your pettiness and your self-importance. Stand in the shoes of another. And ultimately, Paul says, that is what's going to last. Love lasts, and that is what will last into the next world. So let's go back to Jesus and Thomas. Let's go back to our gospel reading. Remember what happens there as Thomas approaches Jesus? Jesus reaches out and grabs his hand and firmly places it in his side, in the wound that confirmed his death. He allows Thomas to feel his way into belief. He loves him through his actions. The velvet glove is gentle, but the message is firm. We are called to believe and we are given the Holy Spirit and we are sent with peace to love a broken world through our actions. Jesus said, peace be with you. But he could also have said, peace be with you because love is here for you. It was by his act of love that the disciples could know peace. This week, how will you choose to act in love? I invite you in a few moments of silence now to maybe write down an action that you would like to take or a person that you are thinking about. Ask the Lord. Where is it that I need to act in love this week?